I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrienne Frost and Laura Geiser. This month, we're reading Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are so excited to discuss Chapter 4 of Beyond Behaviors. This chapter is all about safety as the starting point, and we can't wait to share all this great information with you. Stay tuned. So I wanted to let our listeners know we've had a few updates on our Patreon. We never knew exactly how to use it. We've just been putting our free resources that we've made in the past for the books we've read on the Patreon. But now if you are a Patreon member and it is $3 a month to subscribe, now what we're doing is all of the episodes are released early and ad-free. So you get usually the episodes come out maybe the Thursday or Friday beforehand with no ads in them. And then also Every month, I'm uploading one resource from my Laura G. SLP store that I think members would get a lot of benefit out of. So I'm just taking usually some of my best sellers for that season or month, and I'm putting them on the Patreon free for you guys to download. So last month, I did my back to school inference bingo. And this month, I just added my preschool oral mech visual cue cards, which are digital and print and have a one page response form for completing oral mech exams with really young kids who maybe have difficulty following directions and need some more visual cues. Those are a huge hit in my store. And I thought maybe people would like them on our Patreon. So check out our Patreon options if you want to support the show and want to get a few great resources too. And now today we're also going to play a little show me, you know me. Adrian, do you want to go first? Yes, I do. I always want to go first. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here we go. When I attend a sporting event, I am the type of fan that A, gets loud and heckles the players as much as I can. B is passionate but doesn't go beyond basic clapping and booing. C arrives to the game late, leaves early to beat the trap. <laughs> oh, sorry, my poker face. I got to work on it. Doesn't care much about the outcome, just enjoys the atmosphere. Okay, so I guess it's C. <laughs> okay, I was gonna, it's- my instinct was B because these are different things. You can arrive late, but then also be a passionate fan who cheers and boos appropriately. And then you do leave early because you just picture in your head that nightmare of sitting in that long line of cars. And it's true. 
And it's true. So maybe the problem is the question <laughs> here. But I will say, I laughed because that's what I always do at baseball games. Like if we're not winning, if my team's not winning, I'm kind of out of there, you know, the beginning of the ninth inning. It's bit me a couple of times where there's like, oh my gosh, a surprise home and then they win, you know? Yeah. But most of the time I am kind of out of there. But I did want to bring up when I was an avid WWE wrestling fan, I was A. Like, but that's kind of because... Well, you have to be. What type of fan are you if you're not... Yeah, like... Heckling. When you go and you're yelling and everyone's yelling and chanting, it's like so much fun. Yeah. So sometimes A, mostly C, and B. Okay. How about you? Um, kind of like so many options. I would just be a solid B. Mm -hmm. I love sporting events. I don't go to that many, but I do love attending them. I love watching sports. Yep. I am a diehard. Yeah. I was just going to tell you, well, yeah. if you were at last night's opening game of the NFL season, the Chiefs versus the Detroit Lions, you would have been out of there and missed the end of the game where it came down to the very end. <laughs> but normally if it's close, I don't do that. But yeah, yeah, I know football season is coming. Oh, I'm about to put up my Cincinnati Bengals flag outside. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about to let, let everyone know in my neighborhood what type of house this is they need to know mm -hmm. and they do <laughs> okay this is relevant because we both celebrated our birthdays this summer when i celebrate my birthday i generally a celebrate yes. my birthday the entire week or month b keep it pretty low-key with a select group of friends c party hard on that day or weekend and go all out or d like to take a trip or vacation somewhere i feel like i just know this because we've talked about this before. uh b for you and only because there wasn't an option that was like do nothing <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say actually less than b like i don't go anywhere i don't see anyone <laughs> i stay home and pretend it's not my i've like been at clients' houses, you know? Nobody knows it's my birthday. I'm just working. I don't tell anybody. I just hide. Where did this come from? Like, can we talk about your child? <laughs> yeah, I don't like a ton of attention on me. So yeah, birthdays. I mean, I can remember okay. a few special birthdays, but just in high school, I was definitely a go out to dinner with my friends. Yeah. Like we would go to TGI Fridays together. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Red Robin. That was... That was a good one. Yeah. Um, college, I would celebrate a little bit. But then once I started dating my fiance, he's a person who thinks you shouldn't celebrate your birthday after age like seven. So he's like, what? You're not a child. What do you need to celebrate your birthday for? <laughs> and so I kind of went, you're right. And I've never really liked celebrating my birthday. So wow. Gave you the freedom to do what you've always wanted. Okay. I'm going to guess that you, because we just talked about it. Give me the options again. Celebrate it the entire week or month, keep it pretty low key, party hard on that day or weekend and go all out, or take a trip or vacation somewhere. I'm going to say you're a CD, like you party hard on your birthday or you take a trip. Yeah, like I want to say A, oh, no. but I don't think A is actually true. It just <laughs> depends on when the trip is. <laughs> so yeah, C and D. And I did take a trip this year. Yeah. But even the weekend of my actual birthday, I mean, it was all weekend. Yeah. We went out. We okay. danced. We went to brunch the next day, went to dinner that night, you know. Yeah. It really was a big to do. Okay. Well, here's the other thing. My birthday is two days from 4th of July. I am kind of a holiday birthday mm. person. 
where, you know, everyone who says their birthday's around Christmas kind of gets like, they don't get as many presents for their birthday. Yeah. I do always just go, well, I love 4th of July. I love celebrating 4th of July. That is kind of what I consider my birthday. You in America. Patreon. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, we hope you learned a little bit more and stay tuned as we discuss chapter four from Beyond Behaviors. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a connect for donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. Okay, so chapter four is called Safety is the Starting Point. And the chapter opens up with a story about an eight-year-old named Mateo. So Dr. Delahook describes how she was asked to observe him in the classroom. He was having a hard time communicating verbally just because of, you know, his diagnosis, what he had going on, and would habitually wander around his small special ed classroom, touching the walls and his classmates. She talks about an interaction that she saw where he was trying to get the attention of his aide, but when the aide would not look at him, he moved his arm and it kind of like glanced her arm. And at that point, she did what the IEP said, which was to move away from him and not engage. But then he continued to try to get her attention. He was moving more vigorously. And so she just leaned in and asked him to pay attention to the teacher. And then finally, he leaned back in his chair. It said to see her. And I didn't know if it meant the aide or the teacher. But he leaned back to the point where he fell backwards and it made a loud noise. And at that point, the teacher asked his aide to take him to the calm down room, which was this little closet with a padded floor. And then she just observed him kind of sitting there sadly the sad expression on his face, kicking the wall repetitively while the aide sat to the side and avoided eye contact with him. So Dr. Delahook says that just in that interaction alone, she saw all three of the concerning things that she talked about in chapter one. 
So she saw failing to evaluate the underpinnings of behavioral challenges before we try to decrease them, not putting behaviors into the bigger context of the child's social emotional development, and using one size fits all approaches. So in the example of Mateo, he wasn't misbehaving on purpose, but his motor actions were still under construction. And that made it basically impossible for him to make appropriate communication with his body. So when he was trying to move his arm to touch the aid, maybe it hit her a little harder than he intended it to. And then the adults mischaracterized his movement challenges as behavior challenges when they were actually just him trying to feel safe. And Dr. Delahook says that the moment between Mateo and his aide also shows how we see the behaviors themselves as the main problem without recognizing that relationships and social engagement are huge in helping children build behavioral and emotional control. So before we try to change behaviors, we need to figure out if the behaviors we are observing are a sign of a child's social engagement system that's in need of relational help. And when Mateo's aide misread his bids for help as misbehaving on purpose, Mateo moved from the green pathway to the red pathway. And then the plan to help the child actually increase to his distress because it was saying not to engage with him. And that made it more difficult for him to co-regulate his emotions with others once he was upset. So from this point on, the book is going to focus on how we can update the ways we help children by utilizing approaches that respect the role of relationships in all areas of a child's development. And this is called personal attunement or a way to change our interactions to meet each individual difference and awareness of how to leverage relationships and the environment to build the strongest foundation for development. And this is done through one, prioritizing the child's feeling of safety in relationships, two, addressing the causes and triggers underlying the behaviors, and three, helping the child to develop new ways of coping. So this chapter primarily focuses on prioritizing relational safety for each individual child. And this is a good place to start because Dr. Delahook talks about observing that once a child's relational safety needs are met, a lot of the behavior challenges kind of fade away naturally as the underlying reason for the behavior is addressed. And many of the older techniques that were taught in psychology training focused on viewing behavior basically at face value, but now we know so much more about the brain and how just focusing on the child's thinking brain without thinking about the essential foundation that underlies all brain development, aka relational safety and emotional co-regulation, it's just not the best strategy. So when a child feels truly safe with a trusted adult, social engagement behaviors emerge naturally and they turn their defensive strategies off when they experience that feeling of safety. So now the child doesn't need to fight, run away, or freeze up in order to feel safe on more of a subconscious level. And going back to Mateo, his concerning behaviors such as wandering around the classroom and constantly touching things were his way of coping with a neuroception threat. So he had sensory overreactivity to sound and underreactivity to proprioception. So he needed to move his body to feel calm and to find comfort in his physical environment and with others. So his attempt to touch his aid wasn't an acting out behavior, but it was a reaching out behavior. And when you look at the behavior, you can see it really showed a biologically based strategy that all humans use to feel safe. So when you're distressed, you want a hug or you want that connection, but they were labeling that strategy as misbehavior. And that happens a lot. So there are different things you can look at in order to determine the neuroceptive state of the child. 
the blue pathway behaviors indicate very high levels of perceived stress because the blue pathway is the least adaptive of all three pathways. And that indicates that a child's mind and body are basically giving up and beginning to shut down in the face of what they think is a life threat. So there are some worksheets on page 99 and 100 of the book that you can use, and they have checklists to kind of figure out if the child is demonstrating aspects of the red pathway or the blue pathway. And that can be a helpful place to start. So like, for example, to discern if a child's on the red pathway, you would check to see if their face is angry, if they're making a disgusted face or grimacing, if their eyes are darting around or if they have intense eye contact, if they have fast or repetitive movements, trembling hands, if they're clinging, grabbing or flailing. You would check to see if their voice is high-pitched, if it's loud, if they're screaming, grumpy, if they have uncontrollable laughter. And then you would check their body to see if it's in motion, kicking, hitting, biting, spitting, pushing, or shoving. Those are all indicators of the red pathway. So on the blue pathway characteristics, you would look to see if the face looks flat, especially around the eyes and forehead, if their voice is more monotone, soft, lacking inflection. You would check to see if the child is not talking, making very few sounds, if their body is slow moving and their posture is slumped or frozen, and if the child avoids interaction. But it's important to remember that whether or not a child feels safe isn't based on what adults think ought to constitute relational or environmental safety. It's really about the child's perception of their own safety. So this can be called feeling brain safe. And the most important thing is the child's response to their environment. So a really important factor of a child's stress response is the safety of a relationship. And that relationship can mean the aide or the teacher or the SLP or whoever's working with the child. And they need to know how to help each child feel safe in their mind and body. And Dr. Delahook says that she has witnessed that with some training, adults can learn ways to adapt their interactions to provide the right cues of safety according to each child's unique needs. So when I was reading this, I came to the realization that I always thought that it was the treatment plan that was the most important. And now I'm thinking back on the best aides I worked with, the best like non-public agency support, the best school staff that was supporting kids with challenging behaviors. And I'm realizing that it is exactly this. It was a person that made them feel safe, that built a relationship. And I feel like I got a little bit duped because I worked with this one kid who had a non-public agency that is very, very well known, that has the name of the person credited with starting ABA. And they were very intense and had this like really, really complicated plan in place. Like the kid had to like have a rubber band on his hand and it would be on for 15 minutes. And as long as he didn't engage in any behaviors that were bad, then he got something at the end. But as soon as he did something like slam his hand on a table, the rubber band would come off and he'd know, okay, we can try again in like five minutes. It was like too complicated for me to even understand. But his parents were like, this is the first thing that has worked. And they had me kind of convinced like, oh, this very intense ABA is what works. And they also would switch his provider nonstop. Mm. He was always having new people. He often had two behavior support people there, but he did have ones that he liked and he was so much better on days where they were there. And then other days he was like totally dysregulated because he just had these like two strangers with him that were trying to implement this very complicated plan that was in place. So I just, this really got me thinking about the simplicity 
of just putting a person in who's really calm and really understands the kid, understands their signals kind of, like can pick up, okay, he's doing this and I need to react this way. Mm -hmm. Like he needs more support. He needs us to back off. And it is the simpler, the better. We're putting, sometimes we're putting too much into it when all we need is a good relationship for the kid to behave. Yeah, it's a simple, beautifully simple solution when you can go the other way and have it be so complicated. I see what you're saying. It's just, I think people want to prove their worth. Like, look at all the stuff we're doing. Look at this plan we created. I have a fancy degree and I analyzed everything and I came up with this. I mean, the other thing I just wanted to talk about was you hear all the time in IEPs, he's becoming too dependent on his aid. We need to switch it out. So he learns to adjust to new people. And it's like, Well, if that's what it takes for the kid to feel really safe at school is to always have this, maybe there could be two, but like, why do you always need to switch it? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I really like this next story because I think it kind of, it really underscores what you're talking about. So let me, let me talk about Max. Dr. Delahook shares his story. He's 10 years old. He had multiple developmental delays and suffered from such bad anxiety that he wouldn't leave his house and had a really long history of school refusal. And he had an aide that was there to assist him academically, but his difficulties continued. So during the observation, his aide was seen whispering in Max's ear to try to get him to pay attention. However, Max was sucking on his fingers and biting his nails. And the problem was that Max's IEP plan was not effective in addressing his anxiety. So his aide wasn't able to help him academically because his development was shaky at the foundation of regulation, attention, and social engagement. So it was suggested that the teacher and the aide work on their emotional regulation skills with Max. And Dr. Delahook has another book, which she just casually dropped in there. I thought this was exciting (laughs) called social and emotional development in early intervention. So if you're liking this book, definitely check that out. It sounds like a great manual and it goes more in depth about how to do just that. So how to hone your social, emotional and your co-regulation skills. And Max wasn't making any progress at school because his treatment plans didn't recognize the powerful importance of relational safety underlying his anxiety and affecting his learning. So Dr. Delahook recommends that one-on-one aides be allowed to attend IEP meetings because they are such an important source of support for the child. And I have always felt that way. And I don't understand why they're not allowed to go. It always feels like such a big piece of the puzzle that's just not there. Like, I hate that. It's, I have it in my notes. Like, it is the person who spends the most time with that child, other than their parents, maybe. Like, (laughs) They might spend more time waking hours right. with that child and they are never included in the IEP. It's not like they're not thought of. They're like specifically not allowed. <laughs> and I don't know why. It is so strange. It is so strange. And I feel yeah. like there was always this disconnect. Like I always, you know, I always grew very close with that person when, you know, they would come to our sessions. Right. I, I still have the phone numbers of a lot of the <laughs> behavior support, you know, it, because yeah. we would text with each other like, are you guys here today? Where are you? But yeah. And then I would be kind of like letting them know things that came up and they were just totally in the dark. They were totally in the dark. Right. So it's interesting. I know it's so strange, but I agree. I think we agree with Dr. (laughs) Delahook. Yeah. So there's a worksheet on page 104 you can use to assess the quality of the relationships in the child's life and 
whether or not they perceive their relationships as safe. And this leads into another conversation, which is about stress. So a good question to ask ourselves is, what is stress? Originally, it was defined as an emergency general alarm reaction. But we've learned since then that there are actually two different kinds of stress responses. One is considered to be good stress, and that is the brain and the body's adaptive response to stress when a challenge is successfully managed. So this is considered good stress because challenging experiences can have benefits, lead to greater resiliency, and help us become more adaptive as people. But bad stress, on the other hand, is the kind that delivers a punch of wear and tear on the body, and that is what we might define as being stressed out. This can compromise stress resiliency and general health over time. So when children receive proper support, manageable stress helps them to build coping abilities and resilience. And one problem is that we don't generally track stress in children's daily lives, and instead we kind of focus more on compliance and behavior management, which means that we're not paying attention to the child's internal stress. So it would be more helpful to help children manage stressful situations and then turn those into experiences that can help them grow. We often prioritize compliance, teaching, or extinguishing behaviors without addressing the child's emotional state. But the starting point should be the child's sense of safety, not the behavior itself. So the adult should make their first priority to co-regulate with the child if the child's not feeling safe. And that was missing from the plan for Mateo, the child we talked about in the very beginning, is there was nothing about co-regulating with his aid, and even the IEP plan they had in place was kind of working against that. A certain amount of good stress is beneficial for children, but it's really more about balancing enough good stress for a child to push past old fears or limits and grow towards new strengths. And just doing that is described as the zone of proximal development, or the concept that children have a zone that helps push them forward and learn new things as long as they have the right support. So the key is to make sure that it's manageable and to help children monitor their stress level. So we should make certain that the task or activity is not too challenging. And this should all sound very familiar to speech therapists because this is exactly what we do in therapy. So you should go back to an earlier point of success to figure out their processing. And then you can slowly increase the difficulty level and scaffold and support as needed until they sort of achieve the next level. Then they get that feeling of success and you can move forward. But you always want to start where they already are at and then move forward from there. And we can monitor children's levels of stress by using the color pathway concept. So when a child is at the edge of the green pathway, she's probably experiencing increased awareness and arousal that's supportive of learning and is in the zone of proximal development. And Dr. Delahook calls this space the light green path because the child is sort of edging towards the red pathway, but they're not quite there yet. So the key is that the child is not fully overwhelmed, which would push them towards the red path. And these situations help children develop a greater tolerance for stressful situations. And as adults in the child's life, we can use ourselves to communicate emotional safety to a child. This is known as the therapeutic use of self. So something that's even more helpful than teaching a child strategies to calm themselves is to prioritize the experience of being in a space of safety with another person and building a solid platform for the child to grow and try new things that were hard for them before, which helps them, again, to build that resiliency. And in order for us to help these children, we need to have calm emotions. So now we're going to talk about ourselves for a little bit. 
Our emotions are shown to children through our body language. So when we feel safe, we might have softer eyes, a gentle prosody, and a relaxed posture. And although this kind of seems obvious, it can really be hard to stay in this emotional space when we're working with kids who are struggling behaviorally. This is especially difficult for parents who receive a lot of negative messages about parenting, like, you know, you're not doing enough. What are you doing to cause this, etc. So the messages can weigh heavily and take a toll on physical and mental health. And supporting children isn't only about listening or talking. Just our physical presence alone can support through the therapeutic use of self. So when adults offer a calming, warm presence, we help to solve behavior problems by showing the child how to calm their nervous system in a state of defense. So many strategies for helping children with their behavior focus only on the child and don't even mention adults, which again is just a missed opportunity. But I think Dr. Delahook is really doing a lot of work to sort of put that idea out there and hopefully it becomes more popular. So this looks like adults taking notice of their own reactions, checking in with themselves to determine if we're experiencing any stress or if we're showing that, giving attention to our own minds and bodies. We can offer a calm presence to a child when they're in distress, and that's known as emotional co-regulation. But if we want to do this, we need to understand which pathway we're on. So sometimes when you witness a child in distress, your own sense of emotional safety can feel threatened and our own stress response to the situation can easily have a say or do things that we regret later. I think her examples were if they're saying some really offensive things or kind of being very violent, which I don't know, I've been in some situations where a child says something or does something and it's like a little scary and it can cause you to just kind of get out of that green zone pretty quickly. So in order to do this, you might want to take the first step, which involves reflecting and asking questions of yourself to determine what pathway you're on. If you're on the red or the blue pathway with a child, this is where we can get into trouble because when we act instinctively, it can have unfortunate results. So it can be really challenging to maintain emotional presence when the stakes and burden of all of our responsibility is so high. And Dr. Delahook discusses how as humans, we naturally cycle through a range of positive and negative emotions, and we shouldn't be ashamed when we ourselves are triggered by the child's behavior. And the key is to have compassionate awareness for everything that we carry as parents, as caregivers, as educators. And instead of beating ourselves up or feeling guilty for being on the red or the blue pathway, we can work on our own awareness and apply the self-care that we need to get back to green. So this is where you can benefit from knowledge of strategies that work for you, like yoga, talking to a friend, walking, meditating. If you're interested in anything about that, you might want to check out our book we covered, Take Time for You, which focuses on educators, but talks a lot about this and was really helpful. So, But there's some worksheets also on page 112 and 113 that you can use to fill in your own iceberg sheet about what happens when you are triggered and different self-care and calming strategies that work. So if you feel like you're overwhelmed with the burden of your life or the burden of caring for children with behavioral challenges, you know, definitely reach out to a mental health professional to help get you on the path towards greater awareness and self-compassion. Mindfulness is a great tool to help us be present and emotionally stable for children who are suffering. So mindfulness improves psychological and medical outcomes, reduces stress, prevents burnout, enhances satisfaction with the caregiving role, and increases well-being for parents of neurodiverse children. 
we basically have to first help ourselves to be present, self-aware, and calm. And it's so easy to put yourself on the back burner and just focus what's in front of you. But ultimately, that just leads to stress and everybody having a shorter fuse all around. So something very simple that everybody can do is focus on your breath. Next time you're feeling like you're veering onto the blue or the red pathway, you can try taking a breath that's slow and deliberate and then let your exhale gradually become longer than your inhale. And just do that for a couple of breaths until you feel comfortable. It's a good way to just slow your nervous system, calm down the parasympathetic system, and get yourself back onto the green pathway. And if you would like more resources on mindfulness, mindful self-compassion, you can look at page 267 in the back of the book. There's also an exercise on page 116 that can help stimulate calming in the body and positive feelings about yourself. It's called affectionate breathing, and I'm not going to go over exactly how to do that, but definitely check it out in the book. I think it could be really helpful. The concept of self-compassion supports the polyvagal theories organizing principle that when human beings feel safe, their social engagement behaviors, which are the opposite of challenging behaviors, unfold naturally. And then the fight, flight, or freeze behaviors go away because they're not needed anymore. So if you want to think more about how to help children feel connected to you, you can reflect on the time in your life when you felt truly safe with another person. And there's a worksheet on page 118 that can help you think about your feelings that you had when you were in that space of safety. And these are all strategies that can help you be on the green pathway so you can make yourself just more available in general to the children that you work with. And once you are on the green pathway, you're ready to move to the next step, which involves taking account of the quality of your engagement with the child. So it's important to note that you need to be able to say yes to most items on each of these individual worksheets in order to move on to the next one. There's like five or six of them. So the worksheet on page 120 asks you to consider your engagement and relation to the child. So some things that you need to be able to say yes to are statements like, I feel compassion or empathy for the child. My facial expression, body language, and other nonverbals are relaxed. And I can use my words or my body language to reach out to the child in the way that the child needs. The next worksheet on page 121 is about nonverbal interactions. So some of the statements on this worksheet are, I can use words, gestures, or signals to see if we can communicate back and forth. I have the time and space to figure out what I can do to elicit positive signals of back and forth communication with the child. And we are engaging in a shared experience with a nice back and forth rhythm. The worksheet on page 122 is about shared social problem solving for the adult. So some statements on this worksheet are, I have the child's attention. We are communicating in a back and forth way. I can now piece together a few gestures or sentences to see if the child will add to what I'm saying by gesturing to me with body language or with words. And I'm beginning to understand what the child is communicating or needing from me. And then the next worksheet on page 123 is about using words and ideas and play for the adult. So statements on this worksheet are like, I am in a flow of communication with the child. I can begin to deconstruct what may have just happened by guessing what the child is experiencing or asking simple questions. And the final worksheet on page 124 is called Building Bridges for the Adult. So statements on this worksheet are like, I am beginning to understand how the child viewed his or her role and my role and what happened. This is sort of more reflective. We're putting the situation into context. We are forming plans on how to manage this in the future. So each worksheet builds on the one before it. 
And eventually you get to this place where you can analyze what really happened. And with practice and time, surveying your emotional state and a child's state using these worksheets will become easier, but we all just need to remember every child's unique. So the process of working through these worksheets may differ depending on the child. And this developmental model begins with emotional co-regulation between the child and the caregiver where the relationship is put at the center. So we always need to remember the relationship is so important, so foundational. And our interactions with children influence how they make sense of the world. So once a child can feel safe in their mind and their body, the possibilities for learning and growth increase. And that helps them to feel tolerance for new experiences, sensations, feelings, and ideas. So now Dr. Delahook includes a little case study about Felix, who began kindergarten with a reputation as an explosive child who pinched his classmates when they didn't do what he wanted. Now he's moving into first grade and his first grade teacher made much more of an effort with him. She got down on one knee in front of him at the beginning of each day to connect and really look into his face to see clues of if he was stressed or hesitant. And if she sensed that, she would give him a task to help with in the classroom that made sure that he was close to her. And in that way, she was kind of setting the stage for his relational security and assisting with his feelings of safety. So her approach was effective and Felix actually pinched his classmates less frequently and increased his level of self-control. He reached out to his teacher more when he was frustrated instead of pinching and she communicated frequently with his parents and they would had a great line of communication about what pathway he was on that morning and how he was doing so that she could adjust her behavior to support him best. But a few months into the school year, the teacher had to unexpectedly take a week off of work and she left really extensive notes for the sub to try to replicate the relational safety she had worked with with Felix. But despite the fact that the substitute tried to really put the classroom teacher's plan into place, he still pinched her repeatedly. And she was trained to ignore this negative behavior. So she tried to ignore his pinching. However, his pinching was an instinctive impulse that he could not control because he was just shifting so suddenly onto the red path. And when she ignored his behavior, he felt even more unmoored and unsettled. So it can be helpful to think of the children who have the greatest behavioral challenges as those who are the most vulnerable. And the most important first step when we attend to a child who's struggling is to be present with the child. So there's a worksheet on page 127 that can help you to figure out if you are providing cues of relational safety for children. And the story about Felix and the two teachers really shows that even when we're trying to be supportive, sometimes we're not aware of the underlying messages that we're sending that can compromise that emotional co-regulation. So we can't expect ourselves to be able to deliver compassion and positive regard all the time. And that's okay and should be expected and something we should all remember, but it can have an impact on the children. So the next story is about Myra. Myra is a fifth grader who is showing some behaviors that really concerned her mom. Specifically, she bit her nails and her lower lips so much that she had an open sore that would not heal. So as much as the mom tried to hide her reaction, she was really worried about her daughter. So she confessed to Dr. Delahook that as a single mom, she felt a heavy, lonely burden in caring for her daughter. And Dr. Delahook explains that she identified with those feelings that Myra's mom was sharing. And as a mom, she really understood where she was coming from. So she kind of let her intuitive understanding of the situation drive how she communicated with Myra's mom. So over the next several weeks, she and Myra's mom both reflected on how children pick up on their parents' care and concern for them. 
And she emphasized how important it is to be gentle with ourselves as parents in regards to treating the child's behavior with kindness and patience. So once Dr. Delahook felt like Myra's mom trusted her, then she kind of started talking about the concept that maybe Myra was picking up on her mom's concern and that both of their concern was probably unintentionally increasing the other one's anxiety. Dr. Delahook discussed the concept of building resilience and how developing more hardiness in herself as a mom would also benefit her daughter. So once Myra's mom realized that her own emotional tone and stress level was getting in the way of their emotional co-regulation, she was able to change her strategies. She joined a mindfulness-based parenting support group and learned the best thing she could do for her daughter was to pay attention to her own social-emotional house first by building up her own resilience to be a parent who was more hardy and less kind of vigilant and worried. So over time, her interactions with Myra shifted and they both began to relax more together. And then as Myra became more comfortable, she talked more about her concerns and her fears with her mom. And then her lip and her nail biting receded and eventually stopped. So that's a great success story about how just co-regulating and controlling your own emotions can really have a positive impact on the child. And it's important to remember that we often talk about difficulties too soon with a child. So if a child's coming from a bottom up place, then discussing problems really won't be effective because that's a top down process. So it can actually make things worse. And we kind of saw that in the story of Myra and her mom, like thinking too much and dwelling on stress can increase the child's stress. So it's important for us to reflect on our own feelings and motivations and figure out if what we're going to say will make the child feel better or worse. And then now we're going to come full circle back to the story of Mateo at the very beginning of the chapter and what eventually helped him to settle into a pattern for ensuring growth was a greater tolerance for stress because the first step was Mateo's aid learning that certain movements and behaviors from him were seeking reassurance, not trying to act out. So once the aide could recognize this, she was able to lean in instead of moving away. And this was way better for the aide anyway, because it fit her personality better. She wanted to be soft and she wanted to be there for him, but the IEP plan told her to ignore him. So mm -hmm. that was always kind of a conflict for her anyway. And once they said, like, give him that support, be there for him, she was able to help him feel safer in his body and his mind and help him to tolerate manageable doses of stress and become more engaged in the classroom. So as the adults around him focused on emotional co-regulation, he began to be more trusting. He was communicating more, first with gestures, then eventually with an AAC device. So now the techniques offered by his behavioral team, like breaking down tasks into smaller steps and using visual schedules, all gained synergy because he stepped into a whole new world of learning and engagement because he was able to feel safe. So when we think about the human brain and how it evolved over time, we come to understand that the foundation of treatment actually lies in acknowledging the loving and trusting court of humanity. And it's central to mental and physical health. And the concept of neuroception has the power to change the way we view the treatment of challenging behaviors. So as we look towards the next chapter, chapter five, we're going to learn new ways to support children by focusing on bottom up causes and triggers of behaviors that will help us contextualize child behaviors based on what we've learned so far and to specifically figure out what we can do to help them. And then there's a final worksheet on page 132 called Putting It All Together. Safety is the starting point. So this will help you get an overview of any situations you're in with challenging behaviors and what helps and what doesn't. So that was quite a lot of information, but I love that central concept of 
you know, focus on safety first and helping the child to just feel supported and that co-regulation. Yeah, this made me think of one kid I worked with in particular who I think he was in first or second grade when he he got an aide. And when he was in speech one day, we were starting to have a lot of issues ending the speech session. He would get upset or if we played a game and he lost or something, I think even once he hit the other kid in his group when he was in speech one time. And I remember the very first day his aide was there. I looked at her and I was like, this girl is too soft. Like he is gonna, (laughs) (laughs) this isn't gonna work. And he ends up under the table in a full blown, just like, I forget what it was over that day. But I was like, man, how is she gonna get him out of here? She just started today or yesterday. And she, she looked at me and she was like, do you have any Play-Doh? And I was like, okay, got her some Play-Doh. She got one container of Play-Doh. She got under the table with him. Just she laid down right next to him and she started rolling little tiny balls of Play-Doh and just like placing them. (laughs) This kid just became so interested in what she was doing. And then she started offering him balls of Play-Doh and he started rolling them. And she was like, I wonder if Miss Laura would let us take this back to the class. She was like, do you want to ask her? And he's just like, Miss Laura, can we take the Play-Doh? I was like, sure. And then he just calmly left. But it was amazing watching this girl, girl, she was, she was super young, just like get down on his level, show him I'm here. I'm not just going to ignore you. I'm not going to leave you. I'll meet you where you're at. Yeah, I'm going to meet you down here, engage with you. Because a lot of people's instinct would be, oh, he wants attention. Let's ignore him under there. And what does that do? Like she immediately got him calm. And that was my first year. She was still with him when I left. So she was there four years later. I think she missed one day. (laughs) And that day everyone was like, oh my God, she's not here. (laughs) What are we going to do? But yeah, she she always had that effect on him. So this chapter just really like it warmed my heart just to get that message out there that the relationships, the person is the most important tool. It's not the strategies. It's the connection and humanity. And it's just so beautiful. It was not the answer I was expecting, you know, when I was like, how are we going to do this? I'm like, oh, (laughs) it's like, just calm down. Do less. Do less. (laughs) That is the answer we were. We didn't know we were looking for it, but we were. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. I love it. Me too. Okay, everyone. Well, we hope you learned so much and we hope that you will start to put a lot of these practices into play with your own students and stay tuned. Next time we will talk about chapter five and learn more about bottom up processing. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.